This is With You in the Weeds. Do you ever find yourself stuck in between what you know to be true and what you actually experience? Or the difference between where you are and where you want to be? Well, if so, you're in the weeds. And like weeds, those tough places keep coming back. I'm Lynn Rausch. And I'm John Tennant. As counselors, Lynn and I deal with those weeds all the time. Together, we designed this podcast because we want to be with you in those weeds, kind of like God desires to be with us. Hmm. Now, that idea will change everything. So we hope you'll listen in and let us be with you in the weeds. Let's get started. In this episode, shame, even the word, makes you feel weird. Lynn, it is good to have you back. Thanks, John. Last week, I talked with your husband about guilt and you were missing. Mm -hmm. I felt a little less guilty, actually. (laughs) No, I love hosting this podcast with you. And tell us, if you would, who is joining us today and you get us kick-started on shame. Yeah, I am so glad to be back with you guys. And we also have Austin with us and he's going to help us with shame part one. So thanks for being here, Austin. Yeah, I am back from the dead. Flu killed me. I was out (laughs) last week. You might can can hear the, the former flu. But I was resurrected and I'm back. So I'm excited to be here. Well, great. Well, we have a lot to cover today and we are talking about shame, which is related to guilt, like John and Shay talked about last time. In some sense, maybe we could call them cousins. I don't know. Um, But guilt guilt has to do with more of a legal category that's objective. You're either guilty or you're not guilty. But shame is more subjective, and it has to do more with our self-perception and our sense of self-worth. And that's what makes it a much more tricky and complex emotion. Shame is also a really painful emotion that we will do anything to avoid Mm. feeling. And I think the reason why shame is so complex is because it's more than a feeling. Much. In fact, we would even say that it's somewhat of like a disease of the soul. And it's Mm. a powerful force of corruption on our humanity. And it really seeks to destroy beauty and goodness and the imago dei or the image of God in all of us. And that's why I think it is so important for us as Christian therapists to address this issue of shame because I actually think that the root of shame is primarily spiritual. And we see shame referenced in the Bible over 400 times. And so I think that this is where the intersection of psychology and theology are really critical to what we do as Christian counselors. Both of you guys have master's degrees in both theology and psychology. So would you agree with this, that the primary root of shame is a spiritual issue? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I would agree with that, Lynn. Uh, the reason it is mentioned so many times, and there are so many nuances in the way it's uh, described in the Bible, is because it is extremely complex. So let's whittle it down as much as we can. I think the most simple way to frame it is in the beginning of the Bible, where it shows up for the first time in Genesis 2, in the very last verse, and I'm going to read it, both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, if you're in the South, it's naked, Hmm. but we're saying naked, and we don't mean just physically naked when we talk about this. We mean complete Hmm. vulnerability. Yeah. 
psychologically, socially, emotionally, socially, in every way, including their bodies, because there was nothing to hide. So they were naked, felt no shame. Right after this verse, Adam and Eve sin, and then poof, shame shows up. And I think it's like the writer of Genesis is using this literary device to frame the rest of the Bible Mm. as a long story of how shame works to destroy anything good in our relationship with God, relationship with ourselves, relationships with each other. It's a very complex thing, universal to every human. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It is unrelenting Mm -hmm. in its pursuit Mm -hmm. of our destruction. And Lynn, you've come up with a way to kind of break down some of the complexity. Oh, yeah. So if I could jump in real quick before we get to that, um, John, a couple things came to mind. One, you've talked about how complex this is, and that's exactly right. Even in our planning meeting, this was one of the ones that we were just like, how do we even begin to talk about Mm -hmm. that? Um, So I, I can feel that complexity. You're exactly right. And then two, you know, I like how you mentioned shame just kind of poofed into existence. And I want to make sure that our listeners get this. Shame was never intended to be a part of God's original kingdom. You know, God never wanted his people to experience shame in their relationship with him, with one another and uh, ourselves and even themselves. But but once they did sin and once sin entered the world, unfortunately, shame is now an un- unwanted and yet familiar reality of our life, not just as individuals, but this thing spreads to the collective Mm -hmm. and affects entire cultures. So anyway, complex to say the least. Yeah. So to help break this down, we're going to talk through five characteristics of shame as a way for you to just start to wrap your mind around this universal emotional experience. Because I really think that until we can put it under a microscope and identify it, isolate it, and find the proper antidote for shame, I think we're going to feel swallowed up by it. Yeah, you know, you could even put it like this. Uh, Even saying the word shame is uncomfortable for people. Uh, Try going to a party, right? (laughs) And just kind of throw out, hey, everybody, you want to tell shame stories? Right. Uh, It doesn't work. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Major buzzkill. But ironically... Talking about it and naming it is the is the only thing that mm. begins to lower the intensity and minimize its damage. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's why I think breaking this down for our listeners is going to help start to pop the bubble of what that shame feels like. And so, first of all, the first characteristic is that shame is sneaky. Sneaky. It's subtle. And so it can go undetected for a long time. Secondly, shame is characterized by hiding. It likes to stay in the dark, and it does not want to be exposed. Third, I would say that shame attacks the self. It really, like you were saying, it tries to destroy our personhood, our very identity, the core of who we are. Fourth, shame magnifies our weaknesses, our failures, our limitations, our imperfections, and our sinful nature. And lastly, shame just erodes everything. It it causes problems for us uh, physiologically, relationally, mentally, and spiritually, like we've already discussed. It's that pervasive. 
And so if you're taking notes and you've noticed what we've spelled out, it's actually an acronym for the word shame. And so hopefully this is going to be easy for you to remember. I see what you did there, Lynn. Spells out shame. Shame. You get that, John? Yeah. And if you're driving a Tesla, you can take notes (laughs) while you're driving down the road. It'll drive itself, right? That's good. Okay. So before we jump into this acrostic, I I figured it'd be a good uh, thing to do just for our listeners to give a definition of shame. There's so many out there, but- you got to start somewhere. So so here's what we'll say about shame. Shame is the painful feeling of being defective. Mm-hmm. It's a feeling that hits close to home because it's directed towards who we are as people and not necessarily toward the things that we have or haven't done. It's kind of just this global and paralyzing feeling that I am bad, mm-hmm. that I'm not right. And shame can show up as feelings of embarrassment, humiliation, or disgrace. It's it's kind of like the feeling of being exposed. Mm-hmm. And at the very same time, shame is also a brain state that we enter when we feel shame. And what I mean by brain state is that just like every emotion that we've talked about in the series so far, we experience shame in our physical bodies and minds and psyche in specific and acutely painful ways. And so because of this, we got to learn about it. We got to understand it and we have to know how to address it. That's the first step forward. And this leads us to that first letter in our acrostic. So the first characteristic of shame is that it's sneaky. Here's here's a helpful analogy and maybe you've heard this before. Think of shame like a virus. It's found its way into our bodies, dare I say like the flu that I just had, and it wreaks havoc on the immune system. All the parents who are home from work Mm-hmm. Say a hearty amen to stay with those sick kiddos right now. You guys know what right. I'm talking about. Yes. And so it's infiltrated our bodies and minds and hearts. It impacts us at the deepest level. And, and just like a virus, shame is, is mysterious. It's systemic. It's infectious. It's continually at work in the background of our lives, whether we recognize it or not. It's really smart and stealthy and can mutate and be transmitted. And what's crazy is that researchers have begun to study the generational impact of shame. And they're starting to find that it even gets passed down Mm -hmm. from one generation to the next. Uh, Christian psychologist, Kurt Thompson, he's he's kind of our boy. Mm -hmm. We quote him a lot and it won't be the last time we quote him, but he says this about shame. He says, to be human is to be infected with this phenomenon we call shame. And so just as I wrap all this up, I'm kind of in the clouds. Let me land it with it with a story that shows just how sneaky shame can be. You guys mind if I tell just a quick yeah. little story? You know, stories are always good. You love a good story. And you know what? Shame literally embeds itself mm. in story. Right. And here's a great example. Yep. So so my son, Tyler, he loves soccer. He's a darn good soccer player. And he's we just put him on a competitive team this fall. So it's the whole like mm. rat race going out of town for tournaments, the whole deal. And I say that because he's playing with really good kids. Like these kids now are better than I ever was at soccer. So a a few weeks ago at practice, he started learning this new drill with his team. And it was a pretty tough drill. And so the two best kids on the team went first and they did this drill perfectly. But then Tyler got up and he tried it and he kind of rumbled and bumbled and stumbled, didn't do it well. But in response, he went to the back of the line, he sat down and he put his head in his hands and Mm. he started crying. And so I'm on the sidelines, and as a parent, I'm not trying to jump in and save my kid, but like he was there for a while. And so dad radar was up. I was like, okay, I got to go over and check out and see what's up. And, and so I sat down with him, and he's got tears in his eyes, and he said, dad, I'm a horrible soccer player. Aww. And so when I asked him, I was like, buddy, why do you say that? 
He said it was because he wasn't able to do that soccer drill right. Mm -hmm. And he was so embarrassed. And so I tell that story because it shows where and how shame worked. It was really sneaky. I mean, it showed up during a soccer drill. Mm -hmm. My son loves soccer and here comes shame doing something he loves. And I also tell the story because it, it, it attacked, the shame attacked Tyler's sense of who he was. You know, instead of saying, I didn't do that soccer drill right the first time, no, what did he say? He said, I'm a horrible soccer player. And I think we have shame to thank for that inaccurate assessment. Yeah, you're right. Shame is really sneaky and it kind of bites very quickly like a rattlesnake before you even see it coming. And I don't know how you guys feel it in your bodies, but when I get bit by that rattlesnake, I get paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I almost feel like I'm hollowed out. Mm -hmm. Like, where do I go with this? Very sneaky. Good to understand. Let's go to the next letter. It's hide. Uh, Let's talk about how shame isolates us and makes us want to hide. So as soon as Adam and Eve sin, let's go back to Adam and Eve, Mm -hmm. what happens? Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Note the eyes. And they knew they were naked, like almost like internal eyes. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So their eyes are opened to their nakedness and their vulnerability, and they hide. Well, what did they hide from? A perceived ugliness Hmm. that they didn't have before. Their flaws, a sense of imperfection, almost a sense of disgust. Something that they were aware of inside of themselves and with each other all of the sudden. Now, the words used in Genesis 3 to describe this are they saw, they knew. So, I want to make a key point here. Shame always has to do with being seen. Mm -hmm. That's why the eyes are mentioned. Uh, It's about exposure. And the Bible puts it in a specific context, which is relationship. Mm. It's not hanging out there in the abstract. And this means that shame will always involve the fear of being seen or the fear of what you imagine might happen to you if you are seen, even if no one is there. Hmm. And after they're exposed, after they see, after they know inside of themselves this shame, they hide. And we fear shame so much that we'll manufacture ways to hide. It's an automatic impulse, like a muscle reflex. And there are two other key things to know about it in Adam and Eve's reaction to feeling this shame. And they're always in play when we feel shame. One of them is this. Evil will use shame to make us hide. Mm. So God came to them and asked them, who told you that you were naked? Well, the clear implication is that the evil one was telling them, telling them you're defective, run away. I mean, they first, Adam and Eve, they went and they hid. Right Mm -hmm. behind the bushes, God's like, where are you? That's good. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I cut you off. Keep going. Well, and then who told you? I didn't tell you. Mm -hmm. Right. Who told you? Well, the evil one is working with this. And he's saying to Adam and Eve, you are defective now. Your only option is to run away, hide. In the New Testament, we're told that the evil one prowls about like a lion, seeking someone to devour. And I'm going to say that shame is his chief instrument that he uses to devour us Mm. internally and to move us to devour other people. The other way that we hide Mm. is contempt. So not only do we run away and we want to hide, like cover ourselves, 
But one of the ways we do this is contempt, and contempt is always connected to shame. It's like smoke and fire, fire and smoke. And it's the way that we tend to devour ourselves and to devour each other. So where you see this is Adam shows contempt toward Eve by blaming her. He says, look, God, the woman that you gave to me, like you, God, he blames two people in one sentence. He's pretty good at this. The woman you gave to me, she did this. And he's essentially saying, God, you should destroy her because she is responsible. And we do this all the time by shaming other people. Just think of how often you see this in cancel culture. This is shame at work to destroy someone else. And we also show this kind of contempt. We deflect and hide from shame by showing contempt, not only toward other people, but toward ourselves. The internal voices of shame are very destructive. Mm. Like, who do you think you are? You're hopelessly flawed. You can never be loved by God. Look at how disgusting you are. So the story that shame tells us is that we should hide, deflect, and destroy. There's no hope for us. And it leaves us paralyzed and out of control. So the hiding and the contempt to deflect and hide are ways to control something that is clearly uncontrollable. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I also think what comes to mind is that this is where we develop coping strategies. So in our attempts to hide, we need to cover ourselves. We need to defend ourselves. We need to protect ourselves from this feeling of shame. And so this is where, like you're talking about, we blame other people, we lie, we manipulate. Maybe we look for ways to numb ourselves because this feeling Mm -hmm. is so intolerable. It just sort of puts us in a position of needing to deflect, to defend. Um, Yes. And so, well, let's keep going with this. This is really helpful for us to understand. Um, The third characteristic of shame is that it attacks the self. Its mission truly is self-destruction. And in some sense, we do have a bit of a caveat here that I think we need to acknowledge, and that is that shame initially can serve a healthy purpose. Hmm. It's an appropriate feeling that signals and alerts us that we have fallen short, just like Adam and Eve. They Hmm. had done something wrong, and so that signal of shame was important because it alerted them that they had stepped outside of God's intended purpose. And so that's where it can inform us that we're off course. And so think of it this way. If a person is completely devoid of shame, that would actually be dangerous, right? Like if a person is shameless, if they've lost all sense of shame, then that most likely means that this person is senseless or foolish or even animalistic, that they're totally unprincipled. It means that they've completely lost touch with right and wrong because that's a needed signal that warns us that we might be headed off of a cliff. Well, last week we talked about conscience. You're describing a seared conscience. Right. And so we don't want to have such a hardened heart or a hardened conscience that we're not able to listen to what that signal is telling us. In fact, it's really interesting that Jesus very pointedly and intentionally shames the Pharisees. Think about this. He uses public humiliation in order to help them see the error of their ways and, and to reveal their sin because he knew what was in their hearts. And he wanted to expose them. And so Mm -hmm. there are times when 
an evil person or a wicked person can only come to their senses when they experience the painful of emotion of shame. Can I make one distinction? When Jesus does it, it is always to bring redemption. Yes. When the evil one uses shame, it is to bring destruction. Absolutely. Yeah, and so that healthy response to shame can bring us to a point of self-reflection where we go, wow, what have I done? Like that we that our conscience is pricked or pierced. And so it's an opportunity for us to turn around and to repent and to be restored. And I really think of King David who, uh, when he finally experienced appropriate shame over his sin of adultery and murder, he finally breaks down in Psalm 51. And this is what he says. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. See, his shame brought him to the end of himself, and it turned him to the one who could forgive and who could cleanse him. Hey, Lynn, can I just ask a question? Help me think through this. It seems like when David felt that good shame, he ended, he was still feeling other things, but he ended going towards God. Right. And, and would you say, the we'll call it the bad shame, the one that's, that we're talking about that's toxic, whatever, that leads us away from God and away from others. Is that a good way to maybe to distinguish it? Yeah, you know, I, I would even say um, that shame is always toxic, hmm. but depending upon how we respond to it, hmm. it can lead us to a healthy place or a mm -hmm. destructive place. Yeah. Gotcha. And we have to very quickly, like, catch the signal mm -hmm. of come short and turn to God so that it's like redemptive, it brings life, it's repentance, it's gotcha. freedom. Yeah, yeah, I guess what I would say is that after its initial shelf life has expired, yeah. meaning it sent the signal that we need to make a course correction, unfortunately, it keeps on churning in the background. And mm. so that's where it gets woven into our thinking. It gets embedded into our self-talk. It begins to shape the narrative that we have about ourselves and our experiences. And until we properly address it and tend to it, it's it's almost like it becomes this petri dish for just self-loathing mm -hmm. and self-contempt and self-destruction, just like you were talking yep. about. Thank you so much for listening to With You in the Weeds. If you like what you're hearing, text this episode to a friend and find us on Instagram at With You in the Weeds. Okay, so let's just kind of recap here. The S is for sneaky, H is for hiding, A is for attacking the self. John, what does the M stand for? Yeah, M is for the magnification that shame brings. And interestingly enough, it's almost like you feel like everyone around you has x-ray vision yes. and mm -hmm. can see like right through you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So inside of yourself, you know, you feel all of your weaknesses, limitations, imperfections, failures, all the stuff that you think is going to do you in. You feel them very intensely. Let's play with the word magnify for a second and zoom in on it. Like we're looking through a magnifying glass. And one of the things I want to bring out is that it shows up differently in men and women. Brene Brown discovered this in her research. 
And this is what she basically says. Men and women both experience and feel shame in the same way. Okay. I'm mm -hmm. ugly, flawed, defective, canceled, not enough, etc. But they're not triggered in the same way. So triggers here are like messages and expectations embedded in our culture that we agree to and they become woven into us. Mm -hmm. Men tend to have one trigger. I cannot be weak. Mm. One of the things I do with my clients who are male, I'll say, can you imagine like going to work and crying in front of your boss and say, and saying like, I'm really overwhelmed today. And they just have this look of <laughs> horror on their face. Whereas, you know, women can go to work and like, oh, I don't know what's going on with me. Uh, and it's okay. It's a good woman voice, by the way. Yeah. Well, so men, like that's the one main trigger that men tend to have is I cannot be seen as weak or powerless. Mm. Women, on the other hand, have a network of multiple triggers. There are too many to list, but let's boil them down into what Brene Brown boils them down into. Who we should be, what we should be, how we should be. Mm -hmm. uh, in her own words, she says, I feel like I have to be everything to everyone. Now, mm -hmm. Lynn, can, you're a woman. Can you relate to this? Yeah, I mean, I hate to admit it. Um, I'm ashamed to admit it, right? Yeah, right. The shame of feeling shame. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely my default mode, like where I compare myself to other women's appearances, to their successes, to their kids and, you know, what their kids are doing and how their kids behave, especially when my kids were little. I mean, this was mm -hmm. just like such a huge issue, you know, but yeah, like how my home looks, what my marriage looks like. Honestly, it's actually a really heavy burden, like, because you're just comparing yourself right. to everyone. Yeah. You had a lot of problems with your kids. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've taught the parenting class for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, thanks for sharing that, Lynn. The other thing that, that I think, John, what I heard you say, I want to make sure it's clear. According to Brene Brown, she found the experience is the same for everyone, yep. but mm -hmm. what triggers it can be different. Yep. And a lot of that can be determined on culture. What where, what mm -hmm. country did we grow up in? Sure. Family culture, what's okay, what's not okay. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting if for listeners is listening, okay, what are those triggers? Same feeling, but probably different triggers yeah. for lots right. of other things. Mm -hmm. Okay, final letter discussed, the letter E. Shame essentially erodes everything. It basically, shame impacts our nervous system, our, our physiology, our self-talk, our relationships, and it pulls us away from God's love. So in this part, I just want to address how shame can erode our relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, shame never stays in our heads. It always spills over into our lives and into our relationships. And again, Kurt Thompson, he said it so well in his podcast. He said, shame wants to infect and invade our imaginations and then express itself in our embodied action. Hmm. In other words, it's going to move from our hearts and our minds out into the world around us. That's just natural. It's how we were wired. And so how do you know when shame is doing this? Well, let me list some symptoms here. And as you're listening, you can see if you can figure this out in your own life. You tend to isolate from others. You tend to be driven by fear and decision-making. Insecurity is a very familiar state. You don't want to be vulnerable with yeah. other people. Mm -hmm. uh, if you remember, we talked, maybe we did those kind of those broad and global negative and condemning pronouncements about the self. That's what shame does to us. You know, I'm inadequate to do this. I'm incapable of this. I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. I remember Tyler, you know, I'm a horrible soccer player. Why did I stay in that relationship? Whatever. Well, guess what? The pronouncements that you tend to make about yourself, 
you start to make about others too. Oh, you're so blank. Mm. You always do this. And no, it's it's about the person, not so much what they've done, but mm. the person. It's just these pronouncements. Well, this is who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also lives like irrespective of the present moment. How many clients do you have that say to you, I should have known better? Mm-hmm. Like they shame themselves for making a decision that they didn't know how to do differently. Oh my gosh. And you brought this up, you know, briefly, this shame talk, it shows up all the time with clients and they don't even know that they're doing it. Anyway, th- that's kind of belaboring the point, but. Yeah, for sure. Yes, definitely shame impacts our relationships. And it also, as you mentioned, it shows up physiologically. Shame really actually impacts our nervous system. Mm. And what research shows is that when we experience feelings of shame, kind of like you talked about at the beginning, John, getting bit by a rattlesnake, it's virtually impossible to turn your attention to anything else. It becomes Mm -hmm. the overwhelming activity of that primal part of your brain. And when we feel shame, it's actually hard to think coherently because the logical part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, goes offline. And what's happening is that your implicit memory is getting activated, and now what happens is you're recalling other shameful memories and images and sensations that feel familiar in this category of shame. And here's how our bodies often respond to the feeling of shame. We avoid eye contact. We cover our faces. We turn away from the other person. We literally shrink back. We, we almost feel smaller. And we begin to construct a narrative that is one of disconnection, where we are now banished from love, banished from relationships. And this neurophysiological response serves to reinforce these beliefs, the self-talk that you guys were just mentioning, Mm. that we are unworthy, that we are defective. And now we're in this just downward, what we would call a shame spiral. Yeah, and we've got to throw this ball into the field. Uh, This drives addiction. Mm -hmm. Like if I feel this kind of shame, how do I want to get rid of it? Drink, act out sexually, mm-hmm. um, any kind of substances, yeah. right? That just help you dissociate and escape from the pain of shame. It's so yeah. So those those whatever we use, it's almost like they're protective defense mechanisms against this feeling of shame. Mm-hmm. We can't yeah. feel it, so we got to do something to get rid of it. Yeah, it's actually a part of you that's trying to protect you, yeah. uh, but it's very misinformed, right? And it takes you in very bad directions. You right. can also uh, be involved in process addiction. Right. Like if I feel so much shame, I will work harder. Right. I'll work 18 hours a day. Mm-hmm. I will prove that I'm worth something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, we could, that's a whole nother podcast. Mm-hmm. So yeah, not only does it erode us relationally, it erodes us spiritually. So it affects human relationships horizontally, also relationship with God vertically. Let me go quickly with this. The enemy uses it to separate us from God's love by coming in and trying to convince us with shame that we're not enough for God. So we get caught up in performance Christianity, and we hear this all the time with our clients. If I just could read more of the Bible, you know, read the Bible through in a year, read the Bible twice in a year, pray more, memorize more, witness more, give more, serve more, lust less, be more joyful. I mean, that's just exhausting. And some of those things are really good. But they're meant to connect us to God, not to be used to impress God. 
Someone once told me about a bumper sticker they saw, and I wish I had one. Help, I'm a Christian, and I'm tired. (laughs) Um, All of the performance stuff we do is driven by shame, the fear that we're not enough. Well, cheer up. It's worse than you think. (laughs) Because the truth is that we're not good enough for God, not in any way. But the good news is that Jesus has taken good enough off the table by giving us his perfection. It's like a resume that he gives us that we didn't earn. He earned it, but we get to use it. Um, And that connects us to God. One of the passages that I really like, 1 John 2, 28, remain in him, Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. It is Jesus being in him, Mm -hmm. his covering, that impresses God. It's not us. So I don't have to work to impress God. I can be still and know that he's God. I can rest in him. Yeah, I'm so Mm -hmm. excited to get to the conclusion of this episode where we can offer that hope to people. But let me just do a quick recap here. Shame is like a virus. It's sneaky. It causes us to hide. It is self-destructive. It magnifies our weaknesses and failures, and it basically erodes everything. So <laughs> am I missing anything? Let's you close, let's close I mean, in prayer. Is, you got this it. This is a real problem, you Gosh, guys. Yeah. But I also think it's the setup for some great news, Gosh. right? Austin, please yes. tell us you have some yes, good news Yes, there is good news. Us. You know, there's been a lot of bad news, and we need to hear it because we need to understand the signs and the symptoms mm-hmm. and the damage that shame does. And we're going to get in more into this in our next episode. So if you are left wanting more, good. Uh, and you should listen to ne- next week. But we want to highlight just one crucial verse that gives us hope to manage these weeds of shame. And it's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, mm. and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Simply put, Jesus despises and hates shame. He hates that his beloved people experience humiliation and embarrassment and call into question their value and their worth and their dignity. And so because of this, Jesus endured the cross. And this broke the ultimate power of shame in our lives. Mm -hmm. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we're going to be free of shame's influence. That is impossible in the here and now. Unfortunately, shame's here to stay until Jesus returns. But what it does mean is that we can experience greater degrees of relief in the face of shame. Yeah, that's a good way to close it out. Jesus does despise it. I love the way Dan Allender paraphrases this verse, and it really applies to how we have to deal with shame. It's like Jesus was looking at shame saying, hell no, you Mm. will not have the last word. Mm. And Mm. you really have to do that with shame in your life. Mm. The more you run from it, the bigger it becomes. You have to face it. Mm -hmm. So get bravely curious. Notice when you get triggered into a shame spiral, what triggered it? What were you telling yourself? What's the narrative? Where does that voice come from? Is Mm -hmm. it from the accuser pushing you to hide, deflect, and all the corrosive things? Show contempt toward yourself, toward others? Is that the voice you're hearing? Because God's voice is, I know, I'm with you. Mm -hmm. I'm in this. I'm not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers. It's another passage that I love. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is find someone who's safe that you can talk to about your shame spiral and story. Why? It's 
Well, in AA, they have a saying, your secrets will keep you sick. It's the same with shame. When it stays hidden, it keeps us stuck and miserable. Mm. Well, I can't wait till next time when we talk about what the Bible says about how to manage the weeds of shame. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking about this, guys. I feel a little bit better, and I hope our listeners uh, feel a little bit of relief, too. Thanks for letting us be with you in the weeds of life. We want this resource to bring you hope and to help bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Follow us on Instagram at WithYouInTheWeeds. If you like what you're hearing, text the episode to a friend, like us, and leave a review. Until next time, remember, God is with you in the weeds.